Podcast, the local government finance podcast from the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Talking local, globally. This podcast explores ideas and thinking about the role of local government finance as an accelerator of international development, in line with the Sustainable Development Goals and Paris Agreement. Welcome to the eighth episode of Capital Locast. In this episode, we will be talking to Brock Carlton, the Chief Executive Officer of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. Through his 12 years as Chief Executive Officer, Canada's local order of governments has seen dramatic increases in federal investment and national recognition. And the Federation of Canadian Municipalities has become one of Canada's most influential associations. Brock's approach has strong globalist roots. En route to becoming Chief Executive Officer, he spent 16 years developing Federation of Canadian Municipalities international programs, raising municipal capacity to build better lives in developing countries around the world. Now, at UNCDF, we see ourselves as a centre of excellence for local government finance and believe that local government finance is the missing pillar in the development architecture to achieve the sustainable development goals and the Paris Agreement. So who better to speak to than Brock, who has been able to really make this agenda a reality in Canada? Brock Carlton, a Chief Executive Officer of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on uh, Capital Locast. Now, I, I noticed, Brock, that in your Twitter front page, so to speak, you have the statement that cities and towns build nations, they just need the power. What do you mean yeah. by that? Well, for us, we say that, that city building, community building is nation building, that that any country is being built from the ground up by the work that goes on in communities, the work that goes on that's led by municipal governments, the work that goes on in cities. Challenge is that it's not really recognized uh, widely that, that that this is an important piece of the nation-building function. And uh, so there are fiscal tools that are, are lacking uh, in order to achieve the, re- the full potential of this reality of nation-building. There are policy frameworks that are inadequate or contrary, contradictory to the notion that cities and towns have an important role to play. So when we talk about the need, the cities don't have the power, it's just simply frameworks don't enable the municipalities to play the full role that they could play in building countries, whether they're, whether we're talking about environmental sustainability, social cohesion, economic development, the whole range of, of issues uh, that build countries play out in mostly in cities and towns. Exactly. And on a scale of uh, one to five, how far would you say Canada is uh, along the spectrum of, of recognizing the role of, uh, of, it, of its municipalities and local governments in its development? You know, that's a really hard question to answer because Canada is, is there isn't just a federal municipal system. We have the provincial governments and Canada is a highly decentralized country to the provincial level. So uh, in any question about the, the role of municipalities in the country, the federal, the, the municipal-provincial relationship is a key feature of that. So it, it, it varies from province to province. In general, I would say that there is a growing recognition across the country that um, 
municipalities have a really important role to play in achieving the the national interests. And so working with the municipalities to achieve local solutions to national challenges is part of the way we advance in our country. Um, I think that the the uh, current federal government uh, has under, understands this in a way that others haven't. I don't think that's a partisan thing. I think it's partly uh, just an awareness of a government, and it's also an awareness that time is is moving to. Uh, I mean, I don't want to be too dramatic and say the urban age, but it's certainly moving to a place where people are coming more and more accepting of the fact that municipalities, cities in particular, have a huge role to play in national economies, et cetera. So we're on a, we're in a transition. We at FCM play a big part of that, but we're in a transition in this country to a, a broader understanding and a deeper understanding of the importance of cities and the importance of cities and towns in achieving the national interests through the work of the federal and municipal relationship with the provinces as important players in, in, in supporting and participating in the development of their cities and towns in their, in their jurisdictions. Thank you very much, Brock. I'd like to dig down a little bit uh, deeper into those last few comments you've made. You know, from the perspective of the the UN, looking at uh, all the countries in the world, basically, one of the reasons why we were keen to have your story on the Capital Locust uh, series is that under the last 10 to 15 years, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities has become a factor in Canada's development path in a way which is actually relatively advanced compared to the role of equivalent organizations in other countries, whether they're developing countries, OECD countries. In my own country, Britain, for example, the equivalent entity to the Federation of Canadian Municipalities would really, you know, I mean, I mean, to, to, to achieve the dialogue that you have with central government is just a dream for them. I mean, that's something that even in their wildest dreams, they don't think they even have that in their plans. So I'd like to ask you, as a CEO of FCM over the last period, how have you managed to build this relationship with the central government, with the federal government, and how have you managed to form a kind of strategic partnership on behalf of Canada's many, many local governments? I mean, what's been the magic source, if you like, that has enabled you to achieve this role? <laughs> Secret recipe. Absolutely. Um, I think there's a variety of dimensions to this question. One is, and, and I think probably the first thing is, that a few years ago, we simply changed the story. We had a we had for years been, and I've seen many of my peers in other countries follow this path where the story is we need money. We, the municipal sector, need resources. We can't do this, we can't do that, we need this, we need that. And it's a true story, but it's a story of a kind of comes from a place of impoverishment. It comes from a weak positioning of that we're the weak ones and we need your resources. And we change the narrative to say, no, 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 no. Yes, we need, we're under-resourced, but if you want to achieve your national objectives, you have to invest in cities and towns. If you want to achieve the economic interests of the country, you have to invest in infrastructure to create jobs, to create local employment um, and, and local economic activity. If you want to improve, enhance the environmental sustainability in the country, you have to invest locally so that cities and towns can improve the public transit or the 
their wastewater treatment facilities and their buildings, et cetera. So it became this whole narrative around the language that we use of local solutions to national challenges. So this was a big piece of it because it just reframed the entire conversation. So I think that's the first, uh, the first piece of this puzzle. The second is that, um, we have uh, we have um, a really strong ability to well we first of all we're very good at delivering at doing what we do so there's a great deal of comfort in the government so for example if you look at the the partnership that we've been fashioning with the government there are two dimensions to it um, so once we change the story then we put on the table two features that are are important one is the policy and government relations work we do and the political uh, energy that goes behind that from the, a united municipal sector across the country. So that's one important feature, the unity of the sector. The second is that we deliver programs, and we've been delivering programs for over 30 years. So we're very good at delivering programs. And so the government has a confidence that we as a partner in program delivery will deliver results that will achieve the objectives of the federal investments in those programs. So not only are we able to have we been able to reframe the story, but we've been able to live up to the expectations that are needed to support and verify that story that local solutions uh, help, there are local solutions to national challenges. Um, I mean, I think another important feature is the third dimension. This is we're completely nonpartisan, so we're very, very careful about working with all political parties, with all political leaders. We obviously work more closely with the government in power because they've got the levers of power, they've got the levers of resources, um, and they're driving the national agenda. Um, but we are very careful to be very nonpartisan so that as political way, winds shift, we have relationships and have, have had dialogue across the political spectrum so that we can maintain our legitimacy regardless of who's in power in Ottawa. Um, I guess uh, I want to just reinforce a little bit what I said a, few, a minute ago about the unity of the municipal sector. Because we don't have, unlike uh, other countries where they have national associations for big cities and national associations for small towns. We're all one. We're all one family. We're rolled into this one organization. And so when we speak, we speak for uh, over 90% of the Canadian population is captured in our membership. So it's a big voice and it's a united voice. And um, it's not easy sometimes to keep that unity. But at the end of the day, our membership generally understands that united, we are a much stronger voice and a much more credible voice in the conversations with the federal government about the role that cities and towns play in uh, in building the country and fulfilling their objectives as a federal government. And so all of that comes down to fashioning a notion of partnership that we're working together to build Canada. Right. Very interesting. No, I mean, particularly with regard to the local solutions to national challenges. I mean, last week on the podcast, the listeners will have heard how a particular country in Africa, Gambia, is basically using the local government platform, if you like, the platform of of fiscal transfers from central to local government to drive its resilience to climate change. And we heard from the Minister of Environment how... Gambia is seeing that if it wants to build a resilient infrastructure, it's better off delivering that through its local government entities because they are you know, instruments that can, can do that and can calculate the climate risks uh, locally. So it's a, and that's what we're trying to support at the UN. It's a kind of global version of 
local solutions to national challenges. We would say local solutions to global challenges, trying to turn sure. local governments into development actors. But before going down that path, I want to go back to something else you said about the um, the unity of the sector. Now, you know, Canada, the municipalities in Canada range from relatively impoverished in terms of their fiscal resources at small towns in areas of the country that are economically declining, and, and also, I guess, some rural areas like that, to places like Vancouver, where, you know, it must be one of the most expensive places on the planet in terms of uh, real estate and uh, it's booming. So how do you keep that unity? And bearing in mind as well, of course, that, you know, within Canada, you have the, I mean, Canada itself is a very diverse country with the Anglophone and Francophone, the East and the West, the North and the South, etc. How do you keep that unity together? So part of it is focusing on what's important for municipal government. So if you, you think about the diversity of our country and all the, the different perspectives and interests and issues, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of noise in all of that stuff, and so what we need to do is cut through the noise and get to the heart of what does it matter for municipal government in Canada. So that's the first point. So we don't get bogged down in national debates that are not about of interest or within the area of jurisdiction of the municipal governments. So it's kind of a laser focus on what's important for municipalities. The second is that we create different platforms for different kinds of conversations uh, amongst our membership. So we have a we have a caucus of the 22 biggest cities in the country and they're big city mayors and they meet a couple of times a year and they have the conversations they need to have and they help shape the FCM messaging and the relationship with the federal government. Um, and one of the great things about the big city mayors caucus is they recognize that they have the big stick, the big voice, but they also recognize that they're healthy when the rest of the country is healthy. And so the big city mayors would be advocating for rural broadband expansion, for example, because they recognize it's better for their citizens, it's better for their economy if there's a strong rural economy. So there's that that sense of, of broader purpose. So, But back to what I said a minute ago, there are different platforms for different conversations. So we have the big city mayors who meet. We have in our board of directors, we have different caucuses for the different regions. We have a caucus for the north. We have a caucus for rural. So we've got these venues where they can talk amongst themselves about their issues. And then uh, we bring it to the board where it rolls up to um, the national perspective and the regional characteristics, the unique characteristics within that national perspective. So let's take infrastructure, for example. We have defined the problem in infrastructure, the infrastructure deficit, the, the challenges to infrastructure uh, across the country. We can characterize that in terms of the north, in terms of rural, in terms of urban, or east, west, etc. And so we, we roll that up to a policy that says the federal government needs to invest in infrastructure um, and it needs to invest in ways that are creative and flexible so that... Uh, that um, the needs of rural Canada, for example, and small town Canada can be addressed through accessing that infrastructure money and in, sometimes in ways that are different than the big cities. So what I mean by that is in particularly with infrastructure, there could be a federal there is a federal program and we have we have worked very hard for the federal government to understand that the administrative burden to get access to that money is different. The capacity in the local governments have to get access to that money is different. And so they need to set up a program that is flexible to the needs of the, the recipients and to the 
the different regions in terms of priorities, uh, thematic priorities. So the north has a different set of priorities around infrastructure than the south. So it's not one size fits all. Um, so having that, the, the platform for the conversations, rolling up to a national perspective with um, with regional variations and, and flexibility is a really key feature. And I guess I guess we also spend a lot of work with our membership, just helping them understand that one voice going to Ottawa isn't going to get you very far. Uh, when it, when you're one voice representing a few thousand people or tens of thousands of people, if you're a voice representing 90% of the Canadian public, that's a big voice. Uh, and so then, so that's all of that is part of. Um, this unity of sector. And then the other thing is that we, the, the people who know us know that we're working with the federal government very directly on things like designing programs and designing funds to ensure that the federal government is aware of the needs in the different parts of the country, the differing needs in the different parts of the country, so that in most cases, and I, and I, in most cases, you know, somebody in a, in small town Saskatchewan can look at our stuff and see themselves in it somehow, somewhere. Um, and uh, that becomes a really important part of the, the, the unity dimension. It also helps that, that we've had great success in the last many years, both in terms of investments in infrastructure and, and in strengthening the relationship and the dialogue between the federal municipal so we can point to very tangible benefits from a united sector. Very clear. I mean, later on in the conversation, I'd like to come back to that, I think, and look at how we can adapt those lessons to challenges elsewhere in the world. But before that, I'd like to come back to your point about programs. I mean, you mentioned, you know, you have this laser focus. Uh, and so what would an FCM program be? You mentioned that, the, you know, the federal government, you know, likes your programs, you're very effective at delivering them. What does it mean in the Canadian context, an FCM program, and how do, does it impact the work or what of, of local governments themselves? Okay, so just to, to clarify, when I was talking about laser focus, I was talking about the laser focus on themes, on issues like housing and roads and bridges in certain parts of the country. So clearing out the, the other noise that interferes with our interests in municipal government. So then once we have a focus on those themes, then the question becomes, are we working on this one as a policy government relations pro, a piece of work that um, is to convince the federal government to invest in infrastructure or to invest in wastewater treatment? Or are we looking at this as something that we can deliver to the municipalities with federal investments in a very tangible way? It becomes a second method of serving our members and helping the federal government achieve its objectives and a second way of us being partnered. So on the program side, um, what we really have the capacity to do is to take federal investments and and depending on the design, we can move money directly into the hands of municipal government. So if you look at the Green Municipal Fund since its inception in in, uh, in the year 2000 and then along with that, with the other climate change program and asset management program we have, we've moved about a billion dollars into the hands, directly dollars into the hands of our members in ways that advance their interests and the federal interests, et cetera. So the, the, the programs um, become this vehicle for achieving our respective interest, our mutual interests with the federal government and our membership. They're, they're largely focused on either moving money into the hands of our members or building capacity of members to do things. So, for example, we have an asset management program 
that is largely focused on smaller municipalities, and it's all about building their capacity to manage their assets so they can make more effective decisions with the infrastructure money they have, either from their local tax base or from the federal government or from the provincial government. But so there's there's the money in your hands, there's the building of the capacity, and there's also a very strong function of convening. So through our programs, we convene our members to talk to each other so they can learn from each other. An example, I'm going to Montreal this afternoon for a, a meeting of 25 municipalities who are the, the kind of the champion municipalities on climate change action in the country. Um, they're called showcase cities. And the whole venue is largely to, for them to talk amongst themselves about what they're doing, what they can learn from each other, how they can be inspired from what others are doing so they can go back and do things differently in their hometown. So there's this combination, and not all our programs have all these features, but in general, the combination is money directly into the hands, it's building capacity, and it's convening uh, the tables of conversation so that people can learn from each other uh, how to do things differently and how to do things better. Well, that's pretty interesting. I mean, those three elements, money, uh, capacity, and convening, they are also the three principles behind something called the Local Climate Adaptive Living Facility. So that is a, a UN initiative to try to, if you like, see uh, municipalities and local governments as the instruments, the agents for accelerating uh, adaptation to and resilience to uh, climate change. And uh, it's a facility that currently 15 countries have joined and when a country joins that facility, it sets up a mechanism that uses the, the fiscal transfers from central to local government as a route to pass climate funding down so that local government receives this climate funding from central government and is able to use it to measurably build its adaptation and also to meet that country's contribution to the Paris Agreement and to meet that country's right. national adaptation targets. Now, the reason why we, we, we structure it in this way is because, you know, we're also able to enable that country to access the Green Climate Fund directly right. in order to implement this program. And it, we have to structure it like that because, as you know, uh, there's often a lack of trust when it comes to local governments and also... Other agencies like to push them out of the picture. So what we see in, yes. in, in the international development sphere is that a lot of the climate finance ends up with ministries of environment who are traditionally regulatory bodies, not implementing bodies. And so they try to manage these huge projects, uh, very cumbersome with lots of overheads. And when you say to them, well, why not use your local governments to actually get this stuff done? They say, ah. Those guys have no capacity. And then when you ask, yeah. what is the capacity of the Ministry of Environment to, you know, re rehabilitate roads? Zero. I mean, it's not their vocation. Yeah. So, um, I mean, do you face similar issues in Canada you know, or any kind of advice you would give us to how we could overcome these issues? Wow. Yeah. I mean, we certainly face the similar, uh, probably not to the extent you're referring to, but there is that natural tendency to say, well, these guys don't have the capacity to do what they're doing or we, we have to audit do a lot of audits to make sure our money is being spent the way it should be spent. Um, I don't know that I've got any advice. I mean, the, the beauty of our Green Fund model is that, in fact, the federal government has entrusted the municipal sector to manage its own resources 
uh, its resources invested from the federal government to achieve federal interests, really mutual interests, federal and municipal. But the main point is that, that through the green funds, we are managing our the sector's money. Uh, not all of it by any stretch, but this portion of it. And so we, um, now mind you, it takes us, it takes a fair bit of capacity on our side to do this effectively, but the fact that the sector is managing these resources on behalf of itself, uh, is an important dimension to making sure that people, um, feel comfortable with this investment and that these resources are distributed in a way that is conscious of the realities of municipal government. Uh, the program administration, the overheads, all that stuff are all designed because we know the sector and we know how the concerns of the sector, how the sector works. But I don't know if I've got any advice because going back to the very start of this conversation, you, you were very complimentary about the the role that FCM plays in Canada and the unique role that it plays in terms of many of its peers around the world. And I think that that is not an unimportant feature in what makes it work here in Canada. Mm. Um, I have to say that, even though it's, it sounds like I'm being a bit self-aggrandizing, but it's, it's it's true. It's we're a very strong presence in the country, and so the government has confidence that it can invest in us, and we can then move those investments to the advantage of the country through the municipalities. Absolutely. And so what we're trying to do really through the Locale Program and another initiative is the International Municipal Investment Fund, which is a third-party managed uh, investment, a true investment fund. It will be managed by... A French company called Meridium, out of Paris, yeah. is is to provide these kind of um, either the UN or a, a well-known investment fund that can manage these resources on behalf of local governments for these big challenges. But of course, the local governments will actually end up being the ones who get the money and do the work. It's just yeah. providing that kind of third-party verification or reassurance to entities like the Green Climate Fund, because as you know. Uh, local governments don't have a seat at the table when it comes to negotiating right. these these international agreements. And so yep. you need the UN yep. to, to, to play that role. And I'd like to move in this direction now for the last part of the conversation. I know that you spent a lot of time developing FCM's international programs. Yep. And for me, that's also not maybe unique, but almost unique. I mean, it's a rare example of a, you know, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities working around the world in developing countries. And I know in some other places when local governments try to do that or local government associations try to do that, there's a lot of kickback and people say, well, focus on your own problems first. And what is, you know, what have the problems of Bangladesh got to do with the problems of Vancouver? Why is Vancouver getting involved there? How have you yeah. overcome that, uh, that kind of response? Well, it was a long road. I just, by coincidence, happened to be in another employment context. I was at the FCM meeting where they decided to launch the international program back in the 1980s and early 1980s. And it, I was watching a very challenging conversation. And what what put it over the top at that time was some visionary uh, mayors who just had the sense that that the planet was urbanizing and the problems and issues in the planet were were becoming urban problems and that we had no business ignoring our responsibility to support the planet in helping to urbanize more effectively. And so there was all those voices of, of you know, why are we spending our resources? And so the, for the benefit of someone way overseas and all that stuff, where, we, where we've come to is... Um, a, the sense of global responsibility. I wouldn't say that's an overwhelming motivator, but that was part of the, the conversation at the outset and remains part of the conversation. 
Some of it is that um, uh, municipalities understand that they have very diverse populations, and so some of this international work is, in fact, helping them understand their own populations in their own communities and engaging the diaspora of one country in part uh, in their communities as part of their international work. Uh, they also also municipalities see it as a as an employee benefit. Like many of them see the profes- professional development opportunities that it creates for people that they want to keep, but may not have all the resources to fight off all the competition sometimes. And so these international work, I don't. It's not play. These guys work very hard when they go overseas, but it's very enriching. Uh, and there's benefit coming back. I mean, this is a really old story now, but there's a subway station in Toronto that was being redesigned and Toronto was in a relationship with Lima, Peru. And so the Toronto folks were showing the folks from Lima the design for this new new program. And the Lima folks just said, you guys don't know how to move lots of people. We know how to move lots of people. That design isn't going to work. And so there was benefits that came back to the Canadian side from these relationships that helped uh, either tangibly improve something going on in Canada or um, less tangible but more esoteric ways of benefiting the, the Canadian communities. Um, but I do think there's a certain sense of global participation that uh, many municipalities have in this country that that inspires them to engage in our international work. I mean, the other more, very more practical thing is that, that we have none of our international work is funded through our membership fees. So it's all funded through external sources and municipalities provide volunteer contributions in terms of the time of, of people. Um, because I do think that if uh, if we were to turn to the membership and say, we're going to use your membership dollar to do this international work, it would be a different conversation. Yeah, that's a very important point. Yes, I remember meeting yeah. uh, about 10 years ago, in fact, at the first ever Resilient Cities Conference organized by ICLE. I think I think his name was David Cadman, the mayor of Vancouver. Yeah, yeah, I remember David. Yeah, and he was one of the real pioneers of this as well. And that was... Uh, yeah really positive and you what you saw is you had uh, I mean this was the first ever conference now they've had many of them of resilient cities uh, yeah. organized by this ICLE group and you saw at the same um, kind of table if you like people like David Cadman the mayor of Vancouver then we had mayors from some South African cities other places yeah. in Africa we had some Asian cities European Latin American and this whole um, north, south, east, west uh, kind of division, the way you divide up the world just fell apart because you actually yeah. saw when cities talk to each other, you saw a very different approach. I mean, there was, I remember there was, you know, Turkish, Iranian, Afghani, you know, Russian, you know, Canadian. And, you know, if you think of the geopolitics, it's just not, it evaporates when you, when, when, yeah. when, when mayors are talking. And then you're talking about real issues. And I found that a really heartening experience, really seeing that. No, that's so true. Just, just for the record, David Cadman was not mayor of Vancouver. He was a councillor. Oh, right. Sorry. Um, yes. But uh, not important. But um, it's so true that, that municipal folks all over the world do the same stuff. They have different resources. They have different political contexts. They have different social contexts, etc. But they do the same stuff. We, had a, we used to work, a, in fact, I was managing a project in Gaza Strip for a few years, and it was fascinating to work there. But it was also, imagine that context is so different from our own. Absolutely. And yet we were doing the same stuff. It was solid waste. It was 
water treatment. It was garbage collection, you know. <laughs> no, exactly. And, and, and that, so in a sense, that comes back to the, the kind of final thought I wanted to discuss with you. You know, you talk about the urban age, and certainly we are approaching that. In many parts of the world, the level of urbanization has kind of flattened out at 75 to 80% of the population of a given country. But in parts of Asia and Africa and some parts of Latin America, though most of Latin America has already reached that 75, 80%, it's still 30%, 40%. But it's rising so quick that within you know maybe 40 years' time, the whole world will have will have settled down at this 80% urban. And this is yeah. a huge change. It's a, a ginormous change. Yeah. And um, I mean, there's the investment, there's the money, where's that going to come from to fund and finance these new um, kind of urban, this new urban reality. And that's one of the things that we're working on in terms of uh, UNCDF. But I, I wanted to discuss with you not so much that financial side, but the kind of maybe the political side or even the, the paradigm side. I mean, can do you foresee or is it at all possible to conceive of a, uh, of a world where we are looking at nation states not being the only unit of measurement, the only unit of convening and the only unit of decision where you could begin to have, um, you know, cities playing a little bit of that role? I mean, like mega cities kind of, doing things together and between themselves sharing the same problems or you know i mean i know it's it's a bit of a pipe dream but given the point you mentioned earlier about how they all do the same stuff it might be a much more productive world if we organized ourselves in that way a little bit i mean i know it'll never be totally any any thoughts yeah. on that yeah i i, I agree with you it's a, it's a nice pipe dream i think that that the 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 realistic way to go about that is to recognize that that cities do a lot of exchanging already, and and the more that we can facilitate and support the engagement of city to city collaboration and inter interaction, is going to help that uh, move towards some objective that might be related to that without the political dimensions of the or political implications of what you're espousing. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of interaction already between cities around the world. I, mean, I think part of the challenge is to is how do you develop the secondary cities so these big cities don't become just massive, 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 and totally unmanageable. So a lot of our international work has been um, directed more towards the, the medium size and the second. Let's use the term secondary city, uh, partly because we don't have mega cities in Canada really. Um, but also because it's a it's a development strategy to to try and divert some of the movement off the farm into these smaller smaller uh, urban centers rather than to the mega cities. Um, and the the other dimension that that complicates your your scenario is that I mean urban areas are growing beyond the boundaries of the political boundaries that define them and even define their countries. And so. Um, if you have these sprawling urban areas across international boundaries, what do you like? How do you manage that? Because it's it's it may be separate countries, but it's all one ecosystem. It's all one urban or human system. Um, and I don't know. I, I don't know what the answer is to that that dimension of it. But 
I know our cities uh, receive tons of international delegations and they spend time going to see what other cities are doing as ways of understanding how to do their work better. And I think the more we can encourage and, and, and enable that kind of exchange, the better off we're all going to be. I mean, even to the point, you know, to your point we were talking about earlier around the, um, the, the, the large funding for climate change that is being held at an international level and wanting to get to delivery uh, to the municipalities. I mean, you know, so we do we do something similar here through our Green Municipal Fund. There's always, you know, there's the possibility of us or VNG in Holland or others of similar capacity working to build the capacity in a country where they want to develop that facility to go direct to the municipal sector to manage its own resources in support of its uh, environmental objectives. So, I mean, when I started in 27 years ago at international cooperation at the municipal level, there was not a lot of us uh, around, and it seems to have grown to a, a you know become a real dominant feature of the internet interaction that happens around the world. I think that's only a good thing. Absolutely. No, it is becoming a dominant feature. And I'll come back shortly to this thing on finance. But you raised a couple of other points there I wanted just to drill down on before we conclude. I mean, firstly, on secondary cities, I think... It's really uh, happy to hear that FCM have a great focus on secondary cities because one of the problems right now in many countries is that secondary cities have, I mean, they are not stable uh, in the way that maybe they used to be. Uh, Some would say they never were. But what I mean by that is that if you look back, well, I don't know, maybe half a century or so, in a lot of countries, it was possible to kind of build a decent life in a secondary city, you know, you had a state relatively stable employment, you had specializations, you maybe had yeah. you know, shoemakers, cobblers, and these kind of other yeah. small trades. And you could you could build a life and a secondary city was enough, if you like, uh, to support people in their aspirations and things. And they're becoming hollowed out. And that's partly what is driving the growth of the megacities, because you can't really support a kind of a life and so young people who want to get on uh you know they tend to migrate to the mega cities so are you finding that trend in canada as well interesting question i think what's going on is that there's there's movement to the peri i don't know if it's the right word is peri urban but the area the urban areas that are not necessarily the big city like toronto but the cities that are immediately adjacent to toronto whether it's hamilton or or uh, Waterloo, or some of these other cities, and and I think what's the attraction there is that it, it's affordability. You know, you can't afford you you can't afford to live in Toronto right. uh, and pay the the housing prices in Toronto, but you can afford a house in Hamilton or in Waterloo, and you just tolerate a longer commute. Um, so I I, I mean I, I wouldn't say that's a scientific analysis of the demographic shifts in Canada, but that's certainly my, the impression that I get from what I see and what I read, that uh, the, the affordability question is driving a, a, a shift in our population that is not necessarily mean that everybody is going to the heart of the big city. Right. Whether right. it's Toronto or Vancouver or Calgary or... Yeah, that, that's another interesting phenomenon as well, because, it, you know, we did a recent study on gentrification in the world's least developed countries, and um, it's a factor there too. So this idea yeah. of the urban core, you know, the core of cities being where everybody goes, it, even in places like Uganda, uh, Tanzania, uh, Ethiopia, 
it's becoming Bangladesh, in Dhaka, it's becoming extremely expensive to live in the inner city. So you're finding these huge commute times and this urban sprawl basically developing because of that, because people have to live far enough out for the cost of living to be low enough, but then they have these huge commutes. And of course, yeah. without mass rapid transport, it makes life very difficult. Yeah. So, I mean, one other thing then, but just, just as we finish, Rock, is I wanted to come back to this issue of, of finance. So, you know, you mentioned the international work that FCM has started to do. And also you mentioned the way in which cities can sometimes or, or urban areas can go beyond international boundaries. One of the things that we're working on recently is uh, an initiative called the Blue Peace Initiative, which, for example, covers the Senegal River Basin. In And there, there's one big river in the Senegal and Gambia. There's two countries that share this big river. And here we're looking at ways in which municipal finance could be kind of pooled between different cities, even in different countries. And there's various kind of exotic uh, financial instruments we're also trying to develop with maybe U.S. cities and other cities that can kind of some some kind of different financial pillar that includes cities pooling risk and pooling finance and contributing in different ways financially uh, outside of the, and of course with the authorization of, but outside of the national structure. Uh, do you see foresee any of that in Canada? I mean, do cities pool their risk in Canada or do joint financial kind of interventions? And do you see any possibility of a Canadian city kind of doing something together with a U.S. city or even together with an African city in some way or other? Uh, I'd be surprised in terms of joint financing. I could see, you know, joint initiatives with common objectives, that sort of stuff. But I, I don't foresee a scenario where there'd be joint financing. Um, I think I think that certainly in our context, the, the financing of municipal government is complicated enough, and it rolls into the provincial balance sheets in ways that would be, I think, too complicated for for the scenario you're suggesting here to happen here. Yeah, very interesting. No, exactly. I mean, it's incipient stuff, but it's all part of this idea of having a financial ecosystem that's not you know, based on the yeah. nation state. Well, Brooke, thank you so much. That was a really, I know, I know you have to rush and that was a really a great conversation. I mean, just a couple of things before we, before we close. I mean, we always ask our guests these binary questions, a couple of them, and you don't, you've got to pick one of the two choices. You don't need to, uh, <laughs> you, 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 you can't pass. So I guess the first one, I guess, given where you're from, is I don't know hockey or baseball, which would be your choice? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we just won the World Junior Hockey Championship. Oh, there hockey. you go. <laughs> <laughs> so that's an easy. So uh, that's an easy one. And and I saw that you you know looking at your profile, you enjoy a lot of skiing. So is this cross country or downhill? It depends on where cross country in Eastern Canada, downhill in the in the mountains. Right. So both basically. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I also see that you're not going to stand for the next round. So do you have any plans for the future you'd like to share with us, Brock? Or? You know, there's a couple of things I'd love to do. One, I, I would love to do some work, to go back to my roots and do some more international work, uh, uh, particularly on this municipal international cooperation and association capacity building. Second is that I, I, I think there's a, a contribution I can make to coaching or mentoring young CEOs who are trying to navigate the complexities of this kind of job. And the third is climate change. Right. And I'm not sure what that one looks like, but I think it's the issue of our times. 
and uh, we've done some work on it here at FCM. And I just think that that uh, any work that can be done to support and fight climate change is, is uh, worth doing. Yeah, no, well, on that one, I think we know we, we may have to have a separate conversation because you really are preaching to the converted. I mean, even my daughter is panicking, you know, and uh, which yeah. is good in a way. And she's saying, uh, you know, why are you doing this to us? And it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it, is the, it is the issue of our times. Brock, thank you so much. Have a safe trip to Montreal and we'll be in touch and I really appreciate your time for this podcast. Thanks for your interest. I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, if there's any other conversations to be had, I'm certainly up for them. Thank you so much, Brock. Likewise, uh, all the best. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode. This is Capital Lowcast, the local government finance podcast from the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank you.